This is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. They've got 17 terrific courses online for you and the family. And on this day in history, in 1879, Albert Einstein was born. This is a man whose name has become synonymous with the word genius. But who was he? How did his mind work? And perhaps most important, what can we all learn from him? Walter Isaacson was so intrigued by these questions that he spent over 700 pages trying to answer them in his definitive biography of Einstein. Prior to leading the Aspen Institute, Isaacson ran Time Magazine and CNN. Among his other books are biographies of Henry Kissinger, Benjamin Franklin, and Steve Jobs. As we've done with so many other great authors, let's spend some time with Walter Isaacson on the life and the mind of Albert Einstein. So considering how we now use this word, Einstein, was the young Albert a brilliant and ideal student from day one? He was very slow in learning how to talk, so slow that uh, his parents consulted a doctor. And uh, the family maid, this is growing up in Germany, dubbed him Der Doperty, which means <laughs> the dopey one. <laughs> he was also uh, somewhat of a rebel. Uh, one of his headmasters actually kicked him out of school. Another amuses history by saying, this Einstein, he'll never amount to much. I do think that all of those qualities made Einstein the uh, patron saint of distracted school kids everywhere. Uh, You see his posters, of course, among every school kid who thinks of himself as a rebel uh, or slow in learning how to talk. But I also think that these qualities are among the qualities that help make Albert Einstein a genius. First of all, his slow verbal ability. He was slow in learning how to talk, so he thought in pictures. He used to do what he called thought experiments. It's what you and I call daydreaming uh, when we're not Einstein, but for him, it was called a thought experiment. And it made him imagine things, like what would it be like to ride alongside a light beam or to be in an elevator accelerating in space where there was no gravity or being in a train with lightning striking on both ends. And that's what he excelled in, thought pictures, rather than complex mathematical formulas when he was a kid. Aside from being a bit of a rebellious student, young Einstein was also remarkable for how he marveled at what most everyone else took for granted. His father gave him a compass at age five when Einstein was sick in bed one day. And Einstein said his hands trembled as he just watched why the needle kept pointing north. There had to be some unseen thing in the universe making this happen. I mean, you and I probably remember getting a compass as a kid, but, you know, we didn't sit there and marvel at something that seemed relatively mundane. But he said he learned so slowly that even things like space and time and fields, electromagnetic fields, fascinated him. Perhaps it's this picture of young Einstein as a daydreamer, utterly enthralled by the universe around him, that led to the myth that he flunked math class. But did he? That would be great. It would be wonderful for the irony of history. But no, he was actually very good in math. Even as a kid, he was teaching himself algebra, coming up with his own Pythagorean proof of the Pythagorean theorem by picturing a triangle 
and picturing a larger triangle and realizing that Pythagoras had to be right. Every now and then, you know, my daughter Betsy, uh, she's, when she's 16, she was doing algebra. And she got one of the questions wrong on her homework and was trying to figure it out. And I said, well, just look at it. If the line is, you know, x plus 2y squared and you double it, it's got to slope upward. You don't have it right. It's got to slope upward. So what do you mean? I said, well, algebra, math is just sort of the brush strokes that the good Lord uses to paint the wonders of the universe. It actually refers to things in reality. And she said, oh, they don't teach us that. They don't teach us that math actually refers to a reality. And, uh, yeah, that's what equations are. And so with Einstein, he was a little bit smarter at age 16 than my daughter, even though I love my daughter. Uh, so he was puzzling over Maxwell's equations and what they represented. Maxwell's equations were these new equations that had come along at the end of the 19th century, Robert Clark Maxwell, to describe light waves, electromagnetic waves. And as a 16-year-old, he did one of his thought experiments. He looked at Maxwell's equations and said, what would happen if you caught up with a light beam? Would you ever catch up with the waves? Just like if you were going real fast in the ocean, you'd catch up with the waves, they'd be stationary next to you. Could that happen to a light beam? Could you ever catch up with the waves of the light beam? And for reasons I promise you I won't go into, Maxwell's equations don't allow for that. It says the speed of light is constant. And so he said this worried him at age 16. He got all anxiety. His hands started to sweat. I was thinking of all the things that were causing my hands to get sweaty at age 16. It was not Maxwell's equations. As you can tell, Einstein was in his own world as a kid. And he did what so many other brilliant adventurers have done before and since. He runs away as a teenager, drops out of high school, runs away from Germany because he's, he's resistant of all the Prussian militarists there and stuff, runs away to Switzerland, Italy and then Switzerland, where he applies to the Zurich Polytechnic, the second best college in Zurich at the time, and he flunks the entrance examination. Not in math, I may say, or in physics, but he's not very good in languages. It takes him a year, and he finally gets into the Zurich Polytechnic. And there, being the rebel, being the nonconformist, being the one who defied authority, he's able to tick off all three of the major professors who teach him there. The great Heinrich Weber, the physics professor, doesn't teach Maxwell's equations, Einstein's quits going to his lectures, and then doesn't call him Herr Professor, calls him Herr Weber, which is uh, considered degrading, and so Weber, uh, it feels very alienated from him. Pernay, the lab instructor, the physics laboratory instructor, Einstein was never a great experimentalist, that's why he was a theorist, but he goes into the lab courses of Pernay, tears up the instructions one day, says he can do it better, and blows something up, so he had to get stitches in his hand. Parnay put him on probation uh, from the lab thing. And then Minkowski, the great math professor. Once again, we have a guy who gets to amuse history by saying and putting in writing that Albert Einstein is a lazy dog and uh, not a good mathematician. And when we come back, more with Walter Isaacson talking about Albert Einstein. Einstein, born on this day in history in 1879. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, celebrating the life of Albert Einstein, born on this day in history in 1879. No better person to celebrate it with than Walter Isaacson, who wrote the definitive biography of Albert Einstein. Walter, a terrific writer who also has written great biographies of Benjamin Franklin and Steve Jobs. We were just hearing about Einstein's adventures and misadventures in college. Sure, he managed to tick off all three major professors because he thought he knew better than them, but he did eventually get a degree. And so when he finally does graduate from the Zurich Polytech, he does all right, does pretty well in his grades, but he's the only graduate in his section of the Zurich Polytechnic who can't get a job. Can't get an assistant professorship, can't get a fellowship, can't get a teaching assistantship, can't even get a job teaching high school, which he tries to get. In fact, he floods Europe, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, with letters, job applications, finally buys some postcards. And the postcards are the ones with the little detachable thing for the return postcard so that people could at least give him an answer. And most of them don't even bother to reply. In fact, in one of them in Austin, in Holland, it's now in the History of Science Museum, the postcard Einstein sent looking for a job. I think they'd be slightly embarrassed since they didn't even reply. But he couldn't get a job. Finally, with the help of a friend, he gets a job as a third-class examiner in the patent office in Bern, Switzerland, working on a stool six days a week examining patents. But lest we feel sorry for him, I actually think working in the patent office uh, was one of the reasons he was able to come up with some of his theories. Had he been an acolyte in the academy, had he been a junior professor at a university, he would have to churn out safe papers and appeal to the professors there. Instead, he was looking at patent applications and once again, not daydreaming, thought experiments, he got to call them, doing thought experiments about what it was really like, some of these things that people were applying for patents for. How did they work? What was the physical reality underneath it? He was taught to be skeptical by his boss, taught never to trust in any premise, always look at the underlying premises. And the types of devices he mainly looked at were devices that would synchronize clocks because Switzerland had gone into standard time zones. And the Swiss, being Swiss, were very obsessive about all the clocks in Zurich and the ones in Bern have to, uh, you know, work together and be very good. So there he is trying to synchronize, uh, looking at these devices that synchronize clocks. And, of course, they do it through signals. You send a signal, a telegraph signal or a radio signal or electrical signal. And these signals travel at the speed of light. So he's sort of trying to figure out, how does that all work? And there, right outside of his patent office, he has the famous Bern clock tower, 11th century clock tower, with the trains coming in and out of the station underneath the clock tower. And the trains in the station, the clocks are all synchronized with that big tower as the trains come in. And so he begins thinking about motion and time and the speed of light. And that experiment in his head he did as a 16-year-old about catching up with light beams. But now as an adult, Einstein wasn't merely performing thought experiments for his own entertainment. He was also writing papers and corresponding with other brilliant minds. 
He writes a letter to a friend. He has really close friends and stuff. And fortunately, one of them, Conrad Habicht, uh, is a very close friend of his, and they form the Olympia Academy, where they get uh, drunk or eat a lot together and talk philosophy. But Conrad moves away for a month, which is really good for the history of science, because Einstein gets to write him a letter. Typically of Einstein, it's an impertinent, impertinent letter. Calls him, you frozen whale, you smoked canned dried piece of soul. Why haven't you sent me your dissertation? He says, if you'll send me your dissertation, I promise you, four papers in return. This is a guy, six days a week, working at the patent office on the stool, but when people aren't looking, on the side, in the evening, he's writing papers, papers about physics. And it's only later in the letter that you realize, because he calls it inconsequential babble, the letter. He says, I apologize for writing inconsequential babble. But then he tells about the papers. He says, the first deals with radiation and is very revolutionary. And yes, that's the one that says, light is not only a wave, it's a particle, the foundation of the quantum theory. The second talks about the true size of atoms. This was uh, before both scientists were fully convinced that atoms existed. But this is the paper he decides to use as his third try to get a doctoral dissertation accepted, because they keep rejecting his dissertations because it's the simplest and easiest to understand of his papers. So he submits it for the doctoral dissertation. Another one deals with Brownian motion, which is why particles in water seem to, or in liquid, sort of flicker around. And then he says the fourth is only a rough draft at this point, but it's an electrodynamics of moving bodies which modifies the theory of space and time. It's a lot more than inconsequential babble, that's for sure. What he did not tell his friend in the letter because he hadn't yet thought of it, was right after he finishes that fourth paper, another thought occurs to him, right as he's uh, going on vacation. And that's, oh, if you modify space and time, then energy and mass are related. And he comes up with the equation, of course, the relation of energy and mass, E equals mc squared. And there it is, the most famous equation in all of physics. These articles are now known as the Annus Mirabilis papers from the Latin phrase, miraculous year. And it was miraculous indeed. These four papers, all published in 1905 when Einstein was a mere 26 years old, helped to establish modern physics by radically changing how we view space, time, mass, and energy. He throws away 300 years of conventional wisdom Sir Isaac Newton saying that time is absolute and it tick-tocks along, it moves along irrespective of any observer. Einstein says, no, time is relative. The only thing constant is the speed of light. Now, in these wonderful 1905 papers, there was somebody helping him check the math. A very interesting woman named Maleva Maritz. She was the only woman student at the Zurich Polytech studying physics. A Serbian, a brooding Serbian. They fall madly in love, Einstein and Maleva marriage. Even though she's older, she has a limp, she's somewhat of a depressive, it's an immediate romance. They go off to Lake Como on a vacation right after they get to college and have an illegitimate daughter, lost to history, put up for adoption probably in Serbia, probably died of scarlet fever. Then a few years later, 
Finally, when he can get the job at the patent office, he's finally able to marry her. And uh, they have two children together. And she's putting up with him, putting up with uh, helping him check his math, helping with the papers. But eventually, they drift apart. It's a very human story of Einstein. Very passionate man, not the cold and aloof professor you've been led to believe. So finally, he says to her, because he can't really afford a divorce, he says, one of these days, one of those papers will win the Nobel Prize. Now, nobody had hardly done much with the papers. It took him, he couldn't even get an academic job even after he published the papers for a few years. But he says, one of these days it'll win the Nobel Prize. If you give me a divorce, you will get the money. Now, that's a lot of money, the Nobel Prize. Nowadays, it's a, more than a million dollars. She's smart. She takes a week. She calculates the odds. She consults with a physicist and a lawyer and a chemist. And she takes the deal. Now, it's not until 1922 that they announce that he's won the Nobel Prize. But Malever Maritz gets the money and buys three apartment buildings in Zurich. In the meantime, Einstein has fallen in love with his first cousin. This is a great soap opera, this tale. He and, uh, and Maleva Maritz have two sons. The divorce is kind of messy because he hasn't won the Nobel Prize yet. Uh, he's alienated from his sons. Anguish letters that just have become released to his two sons, back and forth with his first wife, to his cousin Elsa. All these letters about the anguish of the kids, 8 years old, 11 years old, looking for their father. He's finally gotten a job in Berlin, but World War I has broken out. Maleva and the children have moved back to Switzerland. He can't cross the border that often. And even as he's having this anguished personal time with his children, his first wife, uh, falling for his cousin, not quite married to her yet, he's trying to generalize his great theory of relativity. And never a dull moment with Einstein. More on his life with biographer Walter Isaacson when we come back. On this day in history, Albert Einstein was born in 1879. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, the life of Albert Einstein, born on this day in history in 1879. And we're listening to Walter Isaacson, who wrote the best biography on Einstein not too long ago. And what better thing to do than to bring it to life? We've been hearing about Einstein's four miraculous year papers published in 1905 that led to a complete reimagining of physics. But these were just theories. Einstein would have to wait until 1919 for experimental evidence that proved him right. Two years later, he was awarded a Nobel Prize, and things were looking up for Einstein. But not all was well in Europe in the 1920s. As this anti-Semitism is arising, as I said, Einstein is not a conformist. Other people were trying to assimilate, trying to conform, that sort of thing. For Einstein, the rise of anti-Semitism made him identify more with his Jewish heritage. 
He hadn't been very, he believed in God, he believed in God's spirit in the universe, but he hadn't been very practicing in terms of his Judaism. But then in the 1920s, as anti-Semitism rises, he decides to align himself politically with the Zionist movement and Judaism simply because he doesn't like people being oppressed. He believes in free minds and free thoughts. In fact, he comes to um, America the first time, 1921, with Chaim Weitzman. They ask, uh, when they arrive, there's 10,000 people meeting him at the battery. And they ask Weitzman, you know, did he understand the theory of the relativity? And he says, on the way over, Professor Einstein explained to me many, many times that by the time we got here, I was convinced he understood it. (laughs) Anyway, there are parades all over the place. This is a theoretical physicist, but they're parading him up from the battery. But he comes to Washington, and the Senate decides to debate whether or not relativity is right or not. (laughs) Boyce Penrose of Missouri comes out against it. They put the theory in the congressional record, and then they bring him to the White House to meet Harding. And they ask President Harding, do you understand the theory of relativity? And Harding, being one of the um, last uh, honest politicians in this town, says no. (laughs) At which point Einstein admits he doesn't understand the theory of normalcy, which was Harding's political platform. Now firmly established as an intellectual giant who helped launch a new era of physics, Einstein found himself playing a different role than the young rebel. By 1925 or so, he's been contributing to quantum theory, but he gets more and more uncomfortable with it. Suddenly, he's the defender of the old order. He's defending classical physics. He's the one who doesn't believe in quantum mechanics and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and the notion of probabilities. He believes that there's certain laws and that God made certain laws that govern the universe, and all this talk of probabilities and uncertainties makes him uncomfortable. Famously, over and over again, he says, I cannot believe that God would play dice with the universe. Finally, Niels Bohr says to him, Einstein, quit telling God what to do. (laughs) Now, speaking of which, people sometimes ask, well, was God just a figure of speech for Einstein? And people assume, because he was a great scientist, perhaps, that maybe he didn't really believe in God. And he kept objecting. He kept saying, no. I believe that there's a spirit manifest in the laws of the universe, in the face of which we have to be humbled. And that, to me, is my sense of the creator and what we're trying to discover. Then he said, we're in the position of a little child entering a huge library. The child knows somebody must have written the books, doesn't know how doesn't understand. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being towards God. So always he was a searcher for that spirit manifest in the laws of the universe. For somebody with such a big ego and such a big head, he could also have a real humility that came from that awe at looking at the universe. And what a visual of that library and that young boy looking at all the books and the order and nature of things. And so the next time you hear people say Einstein didn't believe in God or you can't believe in God and be a man of science, just quote Einstein and tell that person to shut up because it's just silly. It's silly. It's a fake war, actually. There's never been a war on science and religion. The two have cohabitated together beautifully for centuries.
Up to this point in history, Einstein considered himself to be a pacifist. His humility, his humility allowed him to reevaluate that position. As a scientist, when new facts came along, he revised his theories. And so, when Hitler comes to power, he happens to be, Einstein is visiting America. Einstein, of course, never goes back to Germany. Finally settles in Princeton. And abandons his pacifism to join the fight against Hitler. And he gets visited by scientific friends, 1939. And they go over the possibility of a chain reaction. In other words, putting into effect E equals mc squared, turning a little bit of mass into a huge amount of energy. And so he writes a letter to Franklin Roosevelt, warning that a bomb could be built. And he says, the Germans may be doing this, and you ought to start a project to have a crash course to do the bomb. Somewhat oddly, because he had been a pacifist and involved with a lot of world federalist-type causes, J. Edgar Hoover, who even back then was the head of the FBI, has been compiling a dossier on Einstein as being disloyal. Thousands of pages now available from the Freedom of Information Act, and they decide that he's too much of a security risk to let him know about the atom bomb project, even though he wrote this letter telling Franklin Roosevelt to do it. Uh, so he doesn't work on the atom bomb project, but he does help support the war effort. When the bomb is built, he's pretty much associated in the public mind with it. When you see that mushroom cloud, we imagine the e equals mc squared next to it. Einstein stayed in the United States and spent the rest of his life engaged in everything from scholarship to civil rights advocacy to the appreciation of music. And he was even offered the mostly ceremonial presidency of Israel, but he wisely turned it down as he didn't exactly have the skill set to be a head of state. But he does, on his deathbed, agree to give a speech for Israeli Independence Day. He's told a billion people will listen. He tells Ben-Gurion, great, you'll finally make me famous. And so he writes that speech... And on his deathbed, he's working on it. And he decides to make it a speech on behalf of world peace. He never gave the speech. His papers are there. As he's sitting there in the Princeton Hospital, an aneurysm has burst. And he starts with the very first sentence. I speak to you today, not as an American citizen and not as a Jew, but as a human being. And he has an outline for a speech calling for world peace. But then he puts it aside. And he pulls out his calculations again on the very last night. And on that day, he just keeps scribbling into the evening one last line of equations to try to get himself just a little step closer to the spirit manifest in the laws of the universe with the little cross-outs and the mathematical mistakes and finally trailing off in the end. Thus it was that a very impertinent, rebellious, but incredibly imaginative third-class patent clerk became the mind reader of the creator of the cosmos and the locksmith of the mysteries of the atom and the universe. Spectacular writing by Walter Isaacson, a remarkable life, Albert Einstein's, seeking refuge in the end in the United States. As so many Jews did, we of course covered Billy Wilder and his refuge that he sought here in this great country. This is Our American Stories, born on this day in history in 1879, 
Albert Einstein. As always, Hardest Days in History, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the finest place in America to study all of the good and decent things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for any of their great courses, all 17 of them. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we cover every topic you can imagine. Love, death, sports, art. I just listened to the Andy Grove piece we'd done. What a life this man led, leading Intel, leading the microprocessor and microchip revolution, and lowering the cost of everything and making it faster and better and ushering in, well, everything we use, practically, that we love. In terms of technology, Andy Grove views, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Read that. Watch it. Listen to it. It's terrific. And we're playing this music because it's time for our The Burning Question segment, which we do each week with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And The Burning Question at the Journal, with those great journalists and those deep thinkers and those incredible writers and these well-trained, seasoned veteran journalists, is... Can kissing your dog make you sick? And I got to tell you, I can't wait to hear the answer to this one, Heidi. Thanks for joining us. Important journalism being done on it, kissing your dog. Well, let me it, tell you why it's important, important Heidi. Stuff. I'll tell you a story. I'm away at my family farm. We go, we do this every few weeks, and we get together with cousins and relatives, and we just do nothing. There's not even cell coverage at this farm in the middle of Mississippi. And I'm watching my little pug go out into where the, into the stable where the horses are, and he sleeps with us every night, and he started to eat the horse poop. You smell what I'm cooking, Heidi? So let, let's talk about this, because this is an important question. <laughs> How did you get to this, by the way? How did you get to this question this week? Why this question? Well, this was one of those questions that someone in the office asked, because she loves her dog, and she lets her dog kiss her all over the place. But, you know, we live in the city, most of us, and so there's a lot of icky stuff that the, the dogs are picking up. Um, but... I have to say, it's something like 6% of dogs eat bears or other animal species. So it's not so rare what your dog's doing oh, in the barn there. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel so yeah. alone. Uh, so tell me, what, what's going on inside that dog's mouth? I mean, I've always heard the dog's mouth is the cleanest place in the world. They have special bacteria, and no matter what they eat, all's just dandy. Talk about that. Well, the thing is, is that their mouths are special. You know, they've evolved with all this yucky stuff in there, and it doesn't make them sick for the most part, right? I mean, most dogs are pretty healthy, happy, loving animals and part of the family. And what they carry in their saliva is a lot of bugs. They carry a lot of stuff in there. Um, There's some stuff that that isn't going to be harmful to humans. There's some stuff that isn't going to be harmful to them. And then there's the stuff that ain't so great. 
And those are the things that doctors worry about. Yeah, I can imagine. So you talk to someone named Dr. Sykes, the interim director of the mm-hmm. Veterinary Medical Teaching Hospital at UC Davis. And this is where the journalism comes in, because you've got this burning question that may seem silly, but it leads you down some pretty interesting paths. So what do you learn about... Oh, it's amazing, because there's experts in everything, That's right. right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> they devote their whole lives to studying these things. Well, it's good to know that this doesn't make our dog sick, but the question becomes, does it make us sick? So what does he have to tell us, Dr. Sykes, about your burning question? So it's a she, but she has lots to say about it. So the most crucial things you need to think about are Campylobacter, which is a food poisoning agent, um, Giardia, which can cause diarrhea, you probably heard of Giardia, mm-hmm. and Salmonella, which is, you know, an yep. organism that affects the gut and makes you have to take a couple of days off work or at least not be in public for very long. Um, and all those are just stomach ailments. They're really not, probably not going to kill you. They might cause dehydration and lots of diarrhea and, and pain in the gut. But if your dog is licking you all over your face and getting that saliva in your mouth, you know, you can catch that stuff. But it can get worse than that, which is, uh, I can't even pronounce these words, but captocytophagia canimorsis and pastorella motisoda. And those are, um, they can get into your bloodstream and they can even cause occasionally meningitis, ah, which can kill you. Yeah, that's not good. And so basically he's right. saying if you're going to kiss the dog or let the dog kiss you, not on the mouth and leave open wounds alone and don't let the hound hound your wound, basically. So this is something totally disgusting to me because she spent a lot of time speaking to me about not letting your dog lick your open wounds. And I was shocked that people would even do that. I mean, I guess if it's a little scratch, maybe you're like, oh, that kind of feels good. But, but an open gaping wound just sounds totally disgusting. And <laughs> if you look on the comments on the, on the page that we posted it on, on the journal, a lot of people talk about their dogs licking their open wounds that, you know, it'll cure it and help it heal faster. I mean, it's not going to help. It's still, it's an open wound. And then you're filling it with all these bacteria that you're already trying to fight an infection. And then there's all the stuff that's coming in, bacteria and little organisms. Not such a smart idea to have you pick no. your open no, wound. Yuck. No, it's that's super yuck. Let me ask you about this because there are other ways for this saliva to get to us. And I did not think about this, but it's not just kissing okay, the so wound or kissing the mouth. It's exactly. It's that catch ball so that we really play where with. It gets worse, right? Because what do most people do? They play catch with their dogs. So they pick up that juicy tennis ball covered in slobber oh. and they throw it. The dog catches it, picks it up with its slobbery mouth, brings it back, fetch again. And then, you know, your hands are covered in slobber. And then, you know, you wipe your, people wipe their face something like 60 times an hour, you know, so you're getting it in your eyes and your nose and your ears and your mouth. It's all that slobber is going somewhere into your body so you know you should maybe carry some purell or wash your hands after or just try to be cautious of wiping your face when you're playing with your dog yep yep. and and, you know one one thing i wanted to ask you is you write in your piece uh, about well getting infected by your canine i mean ultimately this can happen as you were just describing um in, in the piece what do you do if if you are infected by your canine so it's funny because most people would think, 
Um, well, you call your vet because your dog got you sick, so your dog must be sick, but your vet really can't treat a human. Right. And she said that there's a lot of, it's like 50-50 people think I call my doctor, I call my dog's doctor, but you really need to call your doctor. So your doctor's the only one that can prescribe antibiotics or whatever needs to be done to get rid of these bugs in your body that you got from your dog. <laughs> you know, you have a couple of, uh, there are some comments, obviously, and the joys of modern journalism is doing anything in public is that you're going to hear from folks. And one, one person, George Ann Mark Miller, wrote, canine blaming is bigotry. The authors are people privileged. Don't need no vet-splaining. <laughs> Ouch. So, so for the people who think you're hating on the pups... What do you got to say for yourself? Um, you got some explaining to well, do. Well, first of all, <clears throat> you got to never read those comments if you write these columns because they're all filled with, I don't know, these people a lot of time on their hands. I know. Um, and they always say mean things. But there are people who are, I'm sure, loving up their dogs and sleeping with their dogs. And, you know, they are part of their family. And I get that. I'm not a dog owner myself, but I get they love their dogs and nobody likes to hear that your dog's carrying germs. But look, my kids are carrying germs too. So I got to wash my hands when they come home too. So exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. Everywhere. It's everywhere, right? Yeah. It's what's, what is really strange though, Heidi, is, you know, my wife watched the dog eat the poop and has watched this before and allows this dog to sleep with us and kiss him. If I went out and ate poop, my wife would not let me kiss her. Why, why the discrimination against the human? This human hating. That's what I want to know, Heidi. Not you know, there is, a, there is the flip side of the coin. Some people do believe, it's called the hygiene hypothesis, that the more exposure you have to yucky, dirty germs, the more your immune, immune system is going to build up. That's and right. then not react when it comes in contact with other foreign objects. So, you know, there's, there's research being done on that right now, but it's not conclusive yet. <clears throat> but she has, she might have something there. She might have if you're something otherwise there. Otherwise healthy. I mean, pretty much what Dr. Sykes worries about is children under five and people over 65. Right. And also people who are already immunocompromised, like a pregnant woman or, um, you know, a drug user or someone who has cancer. So if you're healthy, you know, you're occasionally getting licked by your dog, even your dog that's eating the poop in the barn. Maybe you're going to be okay. That's right. Hey, let me read you another one. Maybe don't kiss your wife. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Let me read one from Ian Andrews for you. Five dogs occupy my bed. Five dogs kiss me throughout every day, every week of the year. So far, so good. Also, this is my fourth generation of pups. I treat them all the same. They get to kiss me and sleep next to me in bed. They're better than girlfriends or wives as they don't complain about us and any BS. So there you go. You really tapped a nerve with this one, didn't you, Heidi? Oh, they hate me. They all hate me. <laughs> they hate you. Hey, Heidi, when you guys are sitting around, do you, it, it, how does this happen? Do you have a consensus? Do you have a group meeting and, and say that's the one? How does, how does the, how does the uh, subject get picked each week? Sometimes it's just like we're sitting around. Sometimes my husband will email me something from work and be like, oh, I need to know is a stand-up desk better? Right, or, right. Um, you know, or I'm driving in the car for six hours and I'm like, my back really hurts. Is there a better way to stretch my back? And they're like, that's a great burning question. Right. Sometimes they're like, 
you know, it's getting hot, it's getting cold. Should I worry about my wet hair? You know, so it varies. Sometimes we get emails. Anybody can email in, burning at WSJ.com. They can mail in their questions, and we can have that random question you never thought to ask answered by an expert. Well, Heidi, I appreciate what you're doing. It's just fun to do this. And I think next week we were were discussing this, and we're building a pool at our house. And if you remember, there was always that wives' tale. You eat a tuna fish sandwich, you got to wait a half hour. You eat a roast beef sandwich, you got to wait 45 minutes before you can swim. And there was always this one person at the pool who knew exactly how long you had to wait before you could actually go in the pool. I think that may be one of our burning questions. Um, not that I want to impose on you, but you know, every once in a while, we think, the, we think these thoughts too. Now, you got us thinking about these things. When it gets a little bit warmer, we'll, we will circle back on that one. Awesome. Well, Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. And uh, come, back more, come back each week, please. Thanks, Lee. Take care. You bet. Enjoy. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The burning question, can kissing your dog make you sick? And uh, I just keep thinking about my dog in that barn, and that makes me sick just thinking about it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after this. And today, we get into the heart of the story of one of America's greatest storytellers. A lot of people don't know much about Mark Twain beyond the fact that their high school teachers compelled them to read The Adventures of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. But few of us know the story of how Mark Twain squandered away all of his money through a series of bad investments, then how he would dig himself out of debt. Today, we have the author of the book, Chasing the Last Laugh. Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour, and it's by author Richard Zacks, who is a best-selling New York Times author, author of The Pirate Hunter, among many others. And thanks for joining us today, Richard. Uh, Great to be here. You bet. And, you know, I mentioned that uh, folks compelled us to read Mark Twain, and of all the things that we read that we were forced to read, this is one of the things most of us actually understood and loved. Before we even begin with the book, what is it about Mark Twain that you think connected to so many generations of readers? I think it's his humor and his, his uh, kind of child, childlike wonder and uh, mixed with cynicism. I mean, he did so many things. His range as a writer is about the most extreme you can imagine. To, to make fun of religion and then to uh, celebrate uh, a runaway slave. To I mean, his... It just boggles my mind. The more I read, the more I realized uh, how far he'd go in different directions and how human he was. I mean, how he, he was able to pinpoint, you know, human emotions about, about guilt and acceptance and generosity and greed. And, you know, it's kind of, you, you, if you paraphrase a Mark Twain story, it, it just kind of sits there and, and you feel like an idiot. And then you read it and you realize, 
oh, my God, the expressions that he came up with and the way he said it. And, and it, it just feels, frankly, so American. Yeah, um, and you know, Mark Twain's books can't be pitched. I mean, if he were to pitch his book, <laughs> right. it would not end well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I was sort of surprised by that because, uh, you know, we'll get to it later, but he, he winds up telling about 30 of his best stories during this Round the World comedy tour. And so occasionally I would just try out on Friends, just paraphrasing what the thing was about. And, you know, I might say it's, uh, oh, he stole a watermelon and the watermelon was green and he tried to make the, uh, the farmer take it back. And it, just, it sounds idiotic. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't kind of, you know, but when he tells it, it's just the most amazing story. Or the jumping frog. I mean, when you, you know, I don't want to blow any punchlines, but, but a lot of these, it, a lot of it's in the telling, and he's just a master. Well, in fact, we're doing this summer, we're going to send a correspondent out for that frog jumping contest out in Calaveras County because Twain just understood the American psyche. He was like a, almost a Tocqueville-type character. He understood the heartbeat of America and made us laugh about ourselves. Well, what I think is great, since you did bring up the jumping frog, um, it's kind of a perfect segue, because people didn't realize about the private Mark Twain. The private Mark Twain, I mean, that was the first story that put him on the map. That was the one that made the National Magazine. That's the one that got him his first book deal. And he understood gambling because he was an inveterate gambler. (laughs) He was just so addicted to risk. And, you know, People, people write up the Mark Twain, and they talk about literary this and that and, you know, uh, religion and King Leopold and all those other things. But this man loved to gamble, and he loved to gamble on pool, and he loved to play poker, and he would bet on things. And, and that's kind of what leads into my whole story, because this side of his personality made him want to gamble on making huge amounts of money. Yeah, and, indeed. And by the way, gambling, for, for those of us who like it, and I love a great poker game. America loves a great poker game. <laughs> but what do we love? It's not just the risk, Richard. It's the camaraderie. It's the jokes. It's the tells. It's the games and the gamesmanship. It basically amplifies all of the things in life, takes us out of our boring lives, and it's almost a heightened reality that we wish we could live in more often. Yeah, I agree with you, because all of life is some kind of risk. I mean, you just cross the street and you're risking. You drive 75 instead of 45, you're risking. But what I love, I did a piece a long time ago about a book bookmaker named Bob the Man Martin, and he said, the greatest thrill in life is winning a bet. The second greatest thrill is losing one. <laughs> it's so true. You know what I mean? Like, people who don't gamble don't understand that. They think I'm just trying to, like, show off with some quote or something. But it's, you want action. I mean, I sometimes only bet, like, five bucks on a, on a football game, and then I can watch Northern Illinois play <laughs> Duquesne, and I care about that game. That's so true. You know? That is so, so true. And people just don't get that. And Twain, oh, God, he really got it. He was addicted. <laughs> yeah, and some people can get in trouble from gambling, and some people can just enjoy it. Well, the same with alcohol. And so it's like all things in the end. One or two more things. I mean, we're obviously spending some time on the book. But I want to just dig in a little bit more to Twain and his writing. Because he busted all conventions. I mean, this was not a guy who used proper grammar. This wasn't a guy who the the, the fancy pants in New York City would think, my goodness, this is the next Proust or this is our Proust. I mean, talk about Mark Twain as a writer and what conventions he just busted. Well, what I think is so amazing is, is people don't realize that for the first 60 years of his life, he was known as a funny travel writer. I mean, everyone wants to forget that, all the people that write the essays at the universities, you know. He was known for Innocence Abroad, which was 
a groundbreaking travel book that basically made fun of all the pretentious travelers to Europe. I mean, it is, it, it <laughs> so about, you know, break, oh man, I don't know if you've read it all recently, but it's, it's laugh out loud funny. I mean, after the first 30 pages, they're a little slow, and then after that, it just flies. But he does things like, he keeps torturing like the guides in Italy when they start getting all passionate about the statues, and Twain will say, is he dead yet? You know? <laughs> Or like the boatmen uh, who are charging excessively to cross like the, the, the uh, Sea of Galilee. He says, um, uh, Twain says, now I know why Jesus learned to walk on water. <laughs> <laughs> so true, so I mean, true. Right, so he, he was groundbreaking. And he, he, I don't know if people realize, but he started by basically being a, a travel writer, and they, he did well enough, they sent him to what was then the Sandwich Islands, which was Hawaii. And he wrote, <laughs> his stuff is so irreverent. I mean, he basically makes cannibal jokes all over the place. I mean, he was kind of unpolished at the time. But um, he came back and gave these, these basically stand-up comedy, and he'll actually, he turns to the audience and says, does anyone have a baby I can use? You know, and they know it's a cannibal joke. You yep. know, and yep. I mean, so, yeah, he, he was great. And by the way, as is the case with so many things, the reason what you did when telling the story to others is great comedy is always about words falling next to other words. It's music, it's timing, it's so much more. When we come back, Richard Zacks, the book Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. More after these messages. stories you're listening to chris stapleton's former band the steel drivers and as americana as americana gets and nothing is more american than mark twain the writing of mark twain the life of mark twain frankly and we're talking to author richard zacks his great new book chasing the last laugh mark twain's raucous and redemptive round the world comedy tour and while we were in the break richard you had asked about just sharing one more story about well Share it with our audience I just where we left to off. I tell you, you know, he, yes, he's, he was known for comedy, and he, was known, and he was known a little bit as a young adult writer, but he really wanted to be a literary author. And it's, he wanted to be like Henry James and Edith Wharton on some level. He wanted all that praise, which just today, you know, kind of cracks us up because he got it all through Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. But he was actually trying to do i mean i think of it as kind of like john stewart doing that movie rosewater right it's a little a little bit of a slow movie it's a very you know praiseworthy endeavor that he was trying to do but it's like no matter how good you are at one thing you want to be something else and the, and the other part of him that wanted to be something else is he had grown up so poor he just wanted to be as rich as rockefeller he wanted to be rich as a vanderbilt which kind of leads into the whole rest of the story here. Indeed. And I, I find it particularly with comics, who at one point or another just want to be taken seriously. Right. And I, we're just preparing for a Tom Hanks hour coming down the road. And Tom Hanks was at this critical juncture in his life where he just didn't want to do another movie with a dog and him yeah. being a goofball. And, and if you remember, his agent got him a script, which he took for nothing. And the movie was Philadelphia. And yeah. though he worked at, you know, scale... 
it changed his life, and people began to take him seriously. And I think the same with Robin Williams, who did some remarkable straight acting. And it showed people that there was more than a red ball at the end of a guy's nose. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, Twain, Twain pulled it off, too, but he eventually had to discover he could do it through satire, you know, through really dark humor. I mean, he couldn't do it. But his Joan of Arc, I mean, I don't think anyone of your listeners should bother reading it personally. But, you know, he was trying to write this high literary thing, and he didn't pull it off, but that's fine. No, and Oscar Wilde suffered the same thing. I mean, uh, no disrespect to his, his, his attempt at the same thing, but we remember him for the importance of being earnest. We remember yeah. him for his humor and his, and his wit and his satire. Totally. Um, yeah, Mark Twain, he, was, he wrote a line, something like a classic, a book that everyone buys and no one reads. Right. You know, and everyone thinks, well, how could he do that? Because he wrote these classics. He can't mean it. Well, at the time he wrote it, he was bitter because his <laughs> books were not considered classics. Right, right. Yeah. And luckily now they are. He wasn't around to really ever recognize that. Now, you've studied the man's whole life. Richard, right. what were some of the more surprising things you found out about Mark Twain? Well, I would say, uh, you know, I didn't know how much he liked to drink, smoke, curse, and gamble. I mean, that's like the Emirates, the beyond the trifecta. What do we have when it's four things? I mean, he... Superfecta. Uh, that's a superfecta. <laughs> yeah, I gamble. Yeah. I love the races. So I know what a Quinella is. I know it all, Richard. <laughs> okay. Superfecta, man. Yep. So he, 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 you know, I mean, and what I, I love all that about him. I mean, he was really one of the most flawed human beings. And that's what, you know, gives him all that humanity, you know, that, that he liked to do all those things. And then to make it even better, he married the most proper woman. You know, it's kind of like Margaret Dumont back in the Marx Brothers right. movies or something. I yeah. mean, Livy was an heiress in a provincial town of Elmira, New York, and she thought there were ways that you had it. She, she got mad at him for, like, not bowing properly to noblemen, you know? I mean... It's just, it's, it's kind of, it's this wonderful comedy that's behind the scenes. So I think it may, his maxims are, and all those great one-liners are kind of like, he distilled it from his life. And that's what's kind of interesting. Well, and the last thing Mark Twain needed is to be married to someone like Mark Twain, and I think the same for his exactly. wife. Exactly. What an awful marriage that would have been. Tell me more about his business investments and his inventions. He's almost like a Ralph <laughs> Cramden type of guy. That's perfect. How did he lose all his money? <laughs> Well, before we get to that, I want some of the inventions because they're just, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, he, he, he invented special clamps so that toddlers couldn't kick the blankets off of their beds. Bed clamps he thought he was going to make money on. He got a patent for that. He, um, he invented a history game that had um, all these, uh, you know, all the questions, who are the kings of England and all the rest of it. But he didn't take time on the board and it used push pins. So basically it destroyed the board every time you played it, you know. He just... He was all over the map. On the other hand, he did make one invention that actually did well for him. Um, the Mark Twain scrapbook has pretty much been forgotten, but he's the first guy to think that you could do dried strips of glue on a page and then moisten them with a sponge or a rag and then put the photograph or the card or the newspaper clipping into the scrapbook. And he patented it. And it, it would have made him a ton of money, but he picked a con man to market it for him, this guy named Dan Sloat. And uh, Sloat wound up going bankrupt like three times and not paying Twain what he was supposed to get. But uh, Twain once wrote one time, when he, after he got a royalty check, he said, my blank book makes more than my written ones. <laughs> hey, that's the thing about being a businessman. I mean, in the end, you've got to have great business instincts, pick your vendors right. And this right. may not have been Mark Twain's great talent. No, it really wasn't. And he, the trouble was he had this moonshot enthusiasm and he had no patience for details. 
So he would just get so excited about some, some new invention or something that he would hear about. So the way he lost his money was ba- basically two, two areas. Um, the page typesetter, which was, you know, he grew up as a, he'd been a printer's devil. He'd been one of those guys that had to take those tiny bits of metal and drop them in so that the newspaper could be printed, you know, a little each letter, individual. And he just thought if anyone could automate that, it would be worth a fortune. And he was absolutely right. The trouble was there were about 30 different main guys trying to do it, and the one he picked did not win, you know. He picked uh, James Page, and he said Page, uh, Page uh, you know, he could, he could talk, a, talk a fish to t- come out of water and take a walk with him, you know. He, he just... Uh, a hustler. He was a hustler, yeah. you know. And at first, uh, Twain called him the Shakespeare of mechanical invention, which was great. Twain would write for places like The Atlantic, and he would talk up these guys, you know. Meanwhile, he was investing in them at the same time, you know. He did it later again. <laughs> that's, oh, that's a little bit of a hustle there, right, as we speak. Yeah. yeah. Set yeah, the yeah. scene for me surrounding then his bankruptcy, but I think we're already getting an idea of why he went bankrupt. Uh, but he, he, he went bankrupt in 1894. Right. How did he react to this, and how did the country react? Because this was a very public thing. Right. It was, it was, he had kept it a complete secret. And, the, and he, what, what bankrupt was actually his publishing company. He had he'd done a tricky thing. He had created his own publishing company, but he named it after his uh, nephew, Charles Webster. So not everyone knew that it was Mark Twain's own publishing company. So he had kind of insulated himself from any of the problems. And then in 1894, it went bankrupt. And there were headlines, Mark Twain fails, no joke. And you know, he, it was so humiliating because he had always sold, you know, basically he was a good talker and he'd sold himself as a brilliant businessman, as his own publisher, as, a, you know, the guy. And he still thought the page typesetter was going to, it wound up being Mergen Taylor's linotype. The linotype took over, but he, he still thought Page might win out. So this was just so unbelievably humiliating for him. And he went to Europe. He could no longer afford to live in his own home in Hartford, which is just amazing. And rather than, he had seven servants at the time, including a, a black butler. Um, instead of cutting back on the servants and just living there quietly, they couldn't stand the shame in the wealthy community of doing that. So they went to Europe in 1891. And uh, they, didn't, they didn't move back permanently for, um, for nine years. How old so, was he when this happened, Richard? Uh, he was, let's see, 1835, so he was 59, 58. He was in his late 50s. And that's tough when it happens yeah, at, at that age. He, think about it. He was, he was considered, you know, the greatest funny travel writer. He was the maker of speeches. He was, you know, he was on his way. A lot of people did take his literary stuff seriously. So, and he was just, he was very, very successful. And then this was so humiliating. And he, and he took it, you know, he tried to put a good spin on it. But there are lines in his, in his private notebooks where he just talks about hell and, 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 you know, the poor house. And he actually talks about suicide. I mean, he says that, that his wife's forbidden him. But that's how dark it got for him. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about his wife. We're going to talk about what he did uh, as it relates to all the people he owed money to and how he got himself out of this mess. It's actually a really remarkable story, Richard. And thanks for writing this. And a, a side note, uh, you know, what, what Twain was going through when he was 60... Uh, I think you're just dead right. I mean, this is that was the life expectancy of human beings right then at that time, Richard. Oh, it, was, it was just brutal to have it happen at that. I mean, at 30 or something, you know, you roll with it and you keep. You got like, time. Sam Walton went bankrupt at, in his late 30s, I think. You yeah. know, the Walton stores failed. You know, but yep. yeah, but 60. Oof. Really rough. And by the way, you know, a couple of decades later, when Wall Street collapses, people just jump out of windows. 
I mean, this is, the, I think, the number one cause of suicide for men is financial failure. Right. Uh, and, and we know this. And so when we come back, let's dig into the, the rest of the story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. Go to Amazon. Order this book now. It makes a great, great gift for a father, for a reader, for a mother, for a friend. And you'll laugh a lot. I promise. You'll laugh a lot. And then you'll want to pick up the Twain catalog. And when we come back, I'm also going to tell Richard about one of my favorite Mark Twain essays about, well, someone passing gas in front of the Queen of Elizabeth, the, uh, Queen Elizabeth. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. stories and we continue our conversation with Richard Zacks, author of Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round the world comedy tour. And when we left off, Mark Twain was staring down bankruptcy. He was old. He was 60, tired, disappointed, dead broke. What happens next, Richard? Well, he has to do something he really didn't want to do. He has to do a round-the-world lecture tour. They called it lectures, but it really was stand-up comedy And when he did it. And um, everyone thinks of Mark Twain as loving to do, you know, it's the Hal Holbrook thing, loving to do public speeches and all the rest of it. He actually uh, dreaded it. He, um, he thought that people he treated, you know, thought of him as a clown. He said, once an audience sees you stand on your head, they expect you to remain in that position. Right. And, you know, right. here he was trying to become more of a literary figure. And, you know, he's 60. He's not, you know, it's not. And he had to go and make people laugh. So here he is miserable from losing all his money. And we didn't even talk about it. He lost his wife's money. I mean, oh. I, don't, I don't know if you're married or not, but losing my wife's money, that scares me. <laughs> uh, luckily, my wife didn't have any money in her family. So I, I can never get jammed up like that, Richard. Oh, well, you know, that's actually really good. Lucky me. He inherited, uh, I mean, his wife inherited the equivalent of, you know, millions of dollars. She was a coal heiress, and her father died suddenly the first year of their marriage, and he moved into a mansion thanks to that. And uh, he succeeded in basically losing, <laughs> losing just about all her money. Oh, know? so he lost his money and her money. That's just uh, brutal. Whose idea was this tour, Richard? Uh, it was his idea. I mean, he, he knew that the only, back then, if you think about it, there's no radio, there's no TV, there's no internet, obviously. There's none, there's none of those things. The way you made the biggest money was people coming to a theater. And some of the highest paid people of that era were the actors. And uh, Twain knew that he could make, uh, I mean, the highest paid were like the musicians. Um, there was, um, uh, what's his name with all the hair, the Polish uh, piano, blah, anyhow. So, um Twain knew the biggest, you know, he can charge a dollar a head, and a dollar was then uh, a day's wage to come and hear him talk. So that was the way. And, and he knew that he, he couldn't just do the United States. He, he thought that he needed to, uh, you know, do the whole British Empire, wherever they spoke English. So it was this incredibly ambitious speaking tour. Yeah, where did he go, and how long was he out there? He was out there for, um, for one year, basically, and he went to 71 different cities, 
He did 122 nights of performing. He would, you know, back then we forget how you travel. He was 100 nights at sea in order to, to go to all those places. He had to take, you know, a boat from the West Coast to Australia and a boat from Australia to India. And um, he, uh, he played small theaters in the United States, and then he played a lot larger ones once, once, once he left. Um, he, the, um, he got in so much trouble with the bankruptcy that he literally had to change his tour because he was liable to be sued in the state of New York. So he had to leave New York State, and he was a little worried that anywhere in the United States they might take his, his uh, lecture, his, you know, the money from the, uh, the audience, and put it towards his debts. So he was pretty eager. To, and he never said, I'm running away. But he, he wanted to get out of the U.S., and he didn't want to return until he could know that no sheriff could, could you know, take any of the money. And he was unique in his approach to, to stand-up comedy, and that is he didn't just do punchlines and running jokes. I mean, he told funny stories. Right. You had one on page 182, uh, okay. The one about growing old. Share that with us, if you could, Richard. Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. He, um, he, he. It was after. It was late one night, and he was in Australia. He was in a club in Melbourne, and he mentions that. I'm. I'm going to try and do it. Here we go. Right. Uh, my my friend on the right and I were talking just now about growing old. I said I thought that if I had created the human race, and then everyone laughs, you know, and someone yelled out, "You did some of them." Um, <laughs> Oh, I could have done it, he says back. Um, I was asked nothing about it, and I didn't suggest anything. But I thought if I had created the human race and had discovered that they were a kind of failure and had drowned them out, well, I would recognize that that was a good thing. (laughs) And then fortified by experience, I would start the thing on a different plan. I would have no more of that 99 years business from the Old Testament. I wouldn't let people grow that old. I would cut them off at 30, because a man's youth is the thing he loves to think about, and it's the thing that he regrets. It is the one part of his life that he most thoroughly enjoys. My friend on the right suggests that we go as far as 40 years, as he doesn't want any of his 40 years rubbed out. Well, perhaps you really might go up to 40, because then you get a perspective upon youth, and that has its values, that has its charm, but oh dear me, I never would have created age. Age has its own value, but that is to other people, not to those who have it. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and, and what you're getting there is that it's the Twain genius. He's talking about something very serious. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. always, always using that wit. Uh, tell but, me this. When he was doing the tour, Richard, what, what, was, what were his intentions as related to the debts he owed? Talk well, about that and Livy's role in this as well. Sure. Um, but maybe we could just hit a little on his his delivery style, just because I think it's so unusual. Absolutely. We, uh, yeah. He, no, I mean, I didn't deliver that the way he would have, because I think I, I, I couldn't, and I'd put you to sleep. But he he did it with, with um, a slow, slow voice, and he did long pauses. And he just stood there without smiling. He never smiled. Nobody ever remembers him laughing hard at anyone else's joke. He was one of those comics that never laughed at anyone else's materials. And he, put, he sometimes even put his jaw on his hand and just, just stood there. And it takes a while, but if you start reading his speeches and you read them that way, they're way funnier. Yeah. But it's just, it's just really hard to do and really unusual. The only person I can think of is like Stephen Wright. I was just you know? about to say Stephen Wright, because that was the thing. You'd look at, if you'd ever read those one-liners, I mean, they're okay. But you watch him deliver them, they're so deadpan, and it's so slow. I mean, it's like paint-drying slow. He said breakfast, 
any time. So I ordered French toast from the Renaissance. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So Twain's delivery really is at the heart of it. So all the people, all the critics would afterwards say, God, I loved his performance, but it's until they invent some way of recording and showing all at the same time, there'll be no, no one can ever explain why this was so great. And, and uh, we have the transcripts, a lot of the speeches, and, and that was a little bit of a challenge trying to get across. So I had to put in a lot of bits about the newspapers would actually write in where people laughed and where he paused. And that helps a lot to try and, try and get, get it. Uh, well, can you imagine, Richard, trying to explain to people through a transcript the epic hits that Rodney Dangerfield did on the Johnny Carson show on yeah, paper? I mean, it's a, it's a waste. Yeah, it is. Stand-up comedy, really. Like, I just went to a Louis C.K. at Madison Square Garden, and it was amazing. But if I saw the transcript of that, I probably would just go, what? That's funny. You That's know? what I paid for? That's yeah. what I paid for? Yeah, so that that's a little bit of a challenge, but luckily I had a lot of Twain's notebooks and Twain's, um, you know, he wrote a travel travel book about this whole thing. So I had a lot of things that he meant to be read, as well as the speeches. You know, so basically for the speeches, he took thirty of his best stories that he had basically been telling for the last thirty years, and he he cherry picked, um, you know, five to ten minute bits. You know, one goes as long as fifteen or so, but and he would just he would deliver six or seven of them every night and just stand there. <laughs> And tell these stories, and he was so unusual. I mean, they were so kind of droll and also really smart, and they were so American. They were about buying his first horse, and they were about the jumping frog, and they were about stealing a watermelon, and they played incredibly well around the world. Well, when we come back, we'll close out this hour with Richard Zacks, and we'll talk about what ends up happening. I mean, does he pay off his debts? Uh, what happens to his psychological state? Does he end up being happy again, or at least something resembling happy? And we'll talk a little bit more of this whole idea of the man having to go out and make people laugh for a living. It's a hard living, folks, by the way. Think of the number of comedians who end up killing themselves. It's really, really staggering. You're out there alone, and you got to make people laugh no matter what mood you're in. And, well, no one takes you seriously at a certain age, at a certain time in your life. Especially a guy like Twain who was looking for status, wanted to be wealthy and seen of as important. This had to be tough, even as he was succeeding and, well, trying to pay down those debts. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh. Richard Zacks is the author. Buy it on Amazon. It'll make a great, great gift. American Stories. We continue with Richard Zacks and his book, Chasing the Last Laugh. So Mark, Mark Twain is traveling around the world. Richard, how did people overseas take to Twain? You know, Jerry Seinfeld has written about and talked about how hard it is to take comedy from one culture to another, because so much of humor has to do with cultural references and cultural knowledge. How did he do overseas? Uh, he he was a huge hit. I mean, he did tailor a little of his um, material. He wrote a poem about um, you know about Australia 
that was the most ridiculous poem. He, he chose the um, platypus as the Australian national animal. And, uh, you know, he, he just... Uh, he was just an enormous hit. I'd say 95% of all the critical reviews are, uh, are positive. I'd say he sold out about 95% of the venues. Uh, he, just, he just did incredibly well. And he was basically treated like royalty by the wealthy people and by the, the, the local artists. And, uh, you know, that was also really nice for him and Livy and his one daughter that went with him. He had to love that, actually. I mean, that's yeah. in the end what he was chasing was that respect, respect. and that he status. Got- Absolutely. And he got, he, you know what, he was almost a bigger literary figure in the British Empire on some level than he was at home. Um, it's hard to believe, but they had, uh, some, some British critics had just loved Huckleberry Finn and his early travel book. Uh, he wrote one that included, you know, where British travelers tended to travel in, in Germany and in Europe. And uh, it was just, it was a huge success. And, uh, but I just want to tell you about, what, I think, what's one of the best celebrity perks any traveling, you know, performer has ever gotten. Yep. Um, tw- they set aside 35 miles of the Darjeeling Himalayan Railroad and let him use it as a personal roller coaster. Get out. Yeah, yeah. And he just had a six-seater hand car, and they just going down. The- I mean, these were steep hills. There were four zigzags that they had to reverse the direction of the car in order to get down. The hill was so steep. They had four horizontal loops where you go loop around through tunnels. And Twain just called call it the absolute best day of the trip and one of the best days of his life. And uh, he just loved the idea of his wife and daughter sitting there. No one mentioned seatbelts. So he's sitting there in these open cars on canvas back seats that are bolted down, going down the Himalayas. You know, it was just, it was great. And by the way, at 60, this just proves his affection for risk, Richard. He's totally, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. shows it. Yeah. So the tour, so the tour is a hit. And people are wanting to know, how's he doing on that debt-paying thing? Right. And, and he's not really saying clear out because he's too smart to give him a straight answer. And basically what happens is he goes to London to write the book. And uh, rumors start swirling that, um, that he's, he's living alone in poverty. And then, you know, one newspaper wants to beat another. And one says that Twain has died in poverty. So uh, this is when he, he has, says his famous line, they sent a reporter and the reporter, it, the mission was send 500 words if Twain um, dying in poverty, send 1,000 words if Twain dead. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and then he said that, uh, that, let me see if I can get it right here. He said that, um, that uh, his cousin James Ross Clemens was ill. The report of my illness grew out of his illness. The report of my death was an exaggeration. <laughs> that's great. And, and that's the one. So anyhow, so he, he, um, he d- didn't pay it off from the trip. A lot of people, a lot of scholars have written that he paid it off from the trip. He basically made maybe half at most from the trip. And a lot of that was because Livy, he thought Livy had to stay in the best hotel everywhere and travel first class everywhere because she was an heiress. So he literally squandered a lot of his money by, because um, back then performers paid their own expenses. Yeah. Um, and um, so then he had to write a travel book. So there he was in London, and he was, you know, actually, I mean, we didn't really have time to talk about it. He had a family tragedy, so he was in an absolutely dreadful, dark mood, and he still had to write a funny travel book. And, uh, but he did it, and um, the book sold, sold well, and that paid off the rest of his debt. And then he, 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 his other daughter got epilepsy right around this time, and so they stayed in Europe another year to try and see if they could cure her. He wanted to come home with her healthy and all his debts paid, but, but she, you know, he can't cure it like that. So yep, yep. anyhow, he comes home in October 1900 to an absolute hero's welcome. 
And so this story has a very happy ending. He was just acclaimed as, I mean, 1893 was basically like a depression. They called it the Panic of 1893. And everyone was, I mean, I use the word hiding behind bankruptcy laws, taking advantage of bankruptcy laws, however you want to phrase it. Mark Twain did not. He paid off his debts. And I'm telling you, that was an inspiration to common Americans, to, to just to everyone, that he, he didn't do the Wall Street thing. He didn't do the high finance. He, Mark Twain, our beloved writer, paid his debts. And he came home and, and just was incredibly warmly embraced. He just had un, unlimited opportunities to speak and to write and to do, do anything he wanted. And uh, he had a, a friend, H.H. H. Rogers, who was uh, a big investor and a man at um, Standard Oil. And uh, he took, when Twain finally built a, a nest egg again, he took that nest egg for Twain and he tripled it for him just over a couple months, just because there was no such thing as insider trading in 1890. Right, 90s. Right. Didn't come until 1934. So anyhow, Twain gets literary fame. He gets, he gets all the money back. You know, things go well. But was he happy? Was Twain ever happy? Eh, I don't of know. Course, you of know. course. He's a, if yeah. you're a comedy writer and you're a writer, right. happiness is, well, that's a silly term almost of art. Right. And uh, let's talk about that stop in India. Talk about Twain's adventures there. Uh, okay, Twain, it, you know, he was, he had, we hadn't really mentioned that how sick he was a lot of the trip. He was sick about uh, 4 to 30, 40 days out of this trip. He had um, terrible bronchitis, which might have had something to do with him smoking 20 cigars a day. But um, he uh, also had a, uh, these, these boils on his body. They called, they called them carbuncles. So he had been sick. And so when he gets to India, he's sick the first two weeks, and you just think, oh, it's just not going to be a very exciting time for him. Well, he thought India was the carnival. He just loved it. He, you know, seen the, the, the snake charmers and the, uh, the holy men on beds and nails and, you know, the women with the midriff showing. And uh, Twain absolutely loved India. And, uh, yeah, he, I mean, I don't know. Just, how did the Indian, how did the Indians, Indian people uh, react to him? Well, that's the thing. Um, they didn't really know who he was. You know, I mean, it's a, you know, there, I think it was only like 250,000 white British you know, soldiers and administrators basically govern the, the country. Right. Most of them recognized him. But, you know, Twain, you know, as much as he claimed to be bothered by it, he had a very unusual hairstyle. In that era, nobody wore their, their hair quite like that. Every, every reviewer comments on the hair because it was such a bushy, curly thing. You mess. Know? It, was it was such just, a mess. Such a mess, yeah. right. Right. That's who I was thinking. Paderewski was another person with, you know, a mess of a hair that was really popular. Um, so Twain, Twain loved India. And he, 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 you know, went sightseeing and, you know, he, in his travel book, he, he makes fun of um, the missionaries, uh, the Christian missionaries there. He said they've had no luck converting the Hindus, but they've converted four monkeys with 11 more hopefully interested. <laughs> that's, that's tough. That is tough. Yeah. And that's the thing. He pulled no punches. And, and nobody back then was doing what he was doing, were they, Richard? No, not really. He, he, he pushed it, and then he really pushed it with his you know, satire later. And Livy didn't want him to publish a lot of it, but that's who she was. And, you know, he, he, he did wind up, you know, eventually, especially after she passed in 1904, you know, more of it came out. Now, he got settled finally. He's back in the United States. His dear friend, who's a, a, a real great businessman and investor, makes a lot more money from him. Does Twain learn, or does he gamble again? What happens before this all ends? Oh, man. So Twain gets back. He's now wealthy again, and uh, he can afford to live at home, buys another house. Um, 
And, uh, of course, he invests again, and he gambles again. And um, he invests in a thing called Plasmon, which is a, a protein powder that's made from, you know, leftover dairy products. And uh, he loses like $30,000 on that. And uh, Which was real money back then. Yeah, 30 times 30, that's basically a million. Yep. So a guy who's finally gotten himself back in order again. I mean, his whole estate, when he, when he passed, is depending on how you value the books, you could value it as low as 200,000. So, so to lose 30,000 is a lot of money. You bet. Uh, uh, yeah, so he still he he can't get over the book. And and H H Rogers, his his investor friend, tried really hard to get him to stop stop investing. You know, at one point Twain Twain wrote him, "I've landed a big fish today." He found somebody that could um, duplicate uh, designs for uh, clothing with some kind of you know early photocopy right. type machine, and he wanted to just sink everything into that. I mean, he was. He's a little out of control. Yeah, well, and again, I, as I as I heard about this story and started poking around, I just kept thinking of Ralph Cramden in the sense that Ralph represented <laughs> in the Honeymooners that every man who always had some big idea and his poor wife had to deal with it, and none of them ever panned out. Right. Well, I, I, uh, when when my wife and I got married, um, I actually quoted from the Honeymooners in the wedding vows. I said, yeah, he was uh, Ralph had some future advice for his brother-in-law Stanley. He said. Said Stanley, when Agnes says I do, that's the last decision you allow her to make. <laughs> I'm the king of my castle. Yeah, Remember that? I'm, I'm the king of my castle. My father-in-law comes up, future father-in-law comes up to me and shakes my hand and says, uh, you don't think you're going to get away with that stuff with my daughter, do you? <laughs> I said, no, sir. She gave me permission to say it. <laughs> oh, you can't beat it. Well, Richard, thanks so much for doing this. And what a great project. What a great read. Chasing the last laugh. And, folks, go to Amazon.com and get it. It's Chasing the Last Laugh again. Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. The writer, Richard Zacks, and the writer he's writing about, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, American fiction writer and the funniest, Mark Twain. This is Our American Stories. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Hey, thanks a lot. You bet. And you can get all of our work at ouramericannetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done hours on everybody from Frank Sinatra to Amart Ertigan, and not many folks can say they do that kind of thing. Take it out with some great American music. <laughs>